Good morning. I invite you to turn to Psalm 24. Where we'll be this morning. If you don't have the Word of God, you can find it on page 458 in the Bible in the pew in front of you. Um, it is a joy to be back with you all um, on such uh, short terms, too. It's usually a little bit longer before I have the opportunity to come back. And so last time I jokingly said every time I come back, I have a new family member. And didn't have time to get a new family member this time, so uh, uh, it's just us four still. But uh, again, I invite you to open to Psalm 24, where we'll be this morning. Uh, what a glorious psalm this is, and I pray that uh, we, we would all feel and see that this morning by the end of the sermon. Uh, it is said that uh, who was known as the Prince of Preachers in his day, and some would even say to this day, Charles Spurgeon as he would walk up the steps to, to preach, with every step he took, he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 At all the steps. And he had, a, he had a long way to go up to the steps to his pulpit. But each step he would say that. And it was to a, be a reminder to himself of who he was, what his mission was, and where his dependence rely, uh, lay. So he remembered... This isn't me coming up here to speak. This is the Lord. The mission is that I would proclaim his truths and his word this morning to those hearing. But then he also recognized it is only by the Spirit that those words come forth. And it is only by the Spirit that hearts are changed. And so he was reminded of his dependence upon the Lord in the task that he had. I recount that because I believe that is something similar that's taking place in this psalm this morning. You see, David is the author of the psalm, as the, as the text says, and this psalm is most likely the song that Israel would have sung as they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem, up the hill to Jerusalem. And a little history on the Ark of the Covenant, it was a, it was a, a large box that God has, had instructed Israel to build, and within it would be God's law, and on top of it would be a a seat known as the mercy seat, which would represent God's presence with his people. And that's where he would uh, declare to his people uh, the commandments they were to follow. And so it represented his presence with them. It was a joy for them to have it around. And we read in 2 Samuel 6 that David was taking this Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. They were carrying it into Jerusalem. But unfortunately, he was not exercising his leadership correctly, and they were mishandling the Ark of the Covenant. And because of this, God, to display his seriousness with his presence and his law, when it began to fall, a man tried to catch it, and the rule was you do not touch the Ark of the Covenant. And when he touched it, instantly he fell dead. And this is not because God is mean or he just wanted to prove a point, but he wanted to show them, I take my presence seriously. I take my law seriously. You need to follow this. And so David, similar to a young child, kind of throws a temper tantrum and says, well, I'm not taking it to Jerusalem. And he takes it to another city, and he leaves it there for three months. And it is suspected, and, and I, I believe rightly so, that in those three months, he wrote this psalm. Because we read in the text that as they were approaching Jerusalem the first time, they were singing, and they were dancing, and they were celebrating. This was a joyous occasion. The presence of God was coming to the place where he was... Uh, dwelling with his people. This was something monumental for them. 
And as he's waiting these three months, deciding, what am I going to do with this thing? Am I going to take it back? He writes this psalm. And as they begin to take it back after the three months, they are singing this psalm as they are walking up the hill to Jerusalem, as they are carrying this Ark of the Covenant and singing and dancing and rejoicing and praising God. These are the words they are singing as they are approaching Jerusalem, the holy city. And so you see, as we read this psalm this morning, we're going to see three declarations, really, that are taking place. We're going to see a humble declaration, a promised restoration, and a victorious celebration. These are the three things we're going to witness in the text this morning as they are approaching Jerusalem, carrying this presence of God, and singing this psalm over and over and over and over. You see, first, beginning in verse 1, we see this humbled declaration. Verse 1 is clear that the earth and everything in the earth is the Lord's. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. David is clear. Everything that is created belongs to the Lord. The world, everything in it, including you and I, including Israel, those who are carrying this Ark of the Covenant up, they, everything, belongs to him. But thankfully, David doesn't leave us hanging. He gives us an explanation as to why God can declare ownership and rulership over all this. Because in verse 2, he tells us, He has established it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The Lord owns it all and He is ruler of all because He created it. And these are two glorious truths about our God is that He is creator of all things and He is ruler of all things. You see, David is not pointing to some higher being or some force out there that has randomly created something. He's saying there is a God out there. There is the God, and He has created everything. And everything, therefore, is His. You see, this is what makes this declaration one marked by humility. To declare that something or someone is the owner of all and is the creator of all is to humbly admit that you need this being. You need this God. There's an admission of submission and dependence upon this great God. To say he owns it all and he rules it all is you saying, I need him and I submit to him. See, it is a recognition that all creation rings out praise to God as creator and owner of all things. That is, except for humanity. And that's, that's, this is the problem. The pinnacle of God's creation, the one thing in creation that was made in His image, refuses to sing praises to God. It is in our nature to reject praising this Creator and owner of all things. And the question is, why is that? Why is it that the rest of creation has no problem ringing out praise to God. And I would like to argue to you that it's because we refuse to see God for who He truly is. We don't like to see God as creator of all things. 
We, we don't like to see him as ruler and owner of all things. It's something we fight every day. It's something we wake up in the morning and we have to say, no, I'm going to submit to this God who has created everything and who owns all things. See, it's Satan and our flesh that constantly want to fight against that truth. Satan and our flesh constantly want to tell us, no, 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 everything is about you. The world revolves around you. And we may say, well, no, that's not true. I don't think the world revolves around me. I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's all about me. See, the lie creeps in not with a totality. It creeps in with very minor things in your life to begin with. See, it's finances. This is my money. I've earned it. It's not about what God has gifted me with and, and entrusted with me. It's about what, what am I going to do with my money? School. It's a, school is for me. It's for me to better myself, to get the job, to get that money. Or to look good for somebody. I need, I need to get this degree because that makes me right in this person's eyes. Children. See, we don't like to think children are about God, but they're for us. This is my child. This, they're here to, to make me look good as a parent. Our spouses. My spouse is there to serve me. Rarely do we say, no, I'm there for them. No, it's, no, they're for me. That's my spouse. Friendships. Though we may pick and choose friends, we always pick and choose because of the benefit that that person brings to us. It's the temptation. I can, it's easy to be friends with this person. I mean, look, look, look at the benefits that come with this person. Church. What does this church offer me? This church is for me. It's supposed to give me something. And though we may not think the world revolves around us, we think that our life is ours. This is my life. I do with it what, what I want. What, I, what pleases me, that's what I'm going to do with this life. God has given, and we may even attribute it to God, God has given me this life. And so I'm going to use it for what I want to do, do with it. It's a lie that we constantly fight with ourselves. We're constantly having to tell ourselves, no, it's not about you. No, those things aren't about you. Those things are about God. See, David knows this is the struggle of every man's heart. He knows it. Which leads him to the question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You see, David is implying that there has to be somebody who can do this. There should be one. Because he knows his Old Testament. He knows his history. He no doubt remembers Adam and Eve having the privilege to walk with the Lord. To communicate with him. To treasure his presence in the garden. To stand with him. But he also, no doubt, is sadly reminded that Adam and Eve forfeited that right. That they forfeited that privilege. It reminds him of Adam's rebellion, and he's forced to ask himself and remind us through this song, who can actually stand before God now? Who can do it? Who, who can ascend this hill to the Lord? He's thinking about the man who died after touching the, the Ark of the Covenant the first time. 
He said, who, who can actually do this? Who is this person? See, he knows he's promised in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve are forced out of the garden. It's promised, hey, there's going to be one that comes and will crush the head of Satan. And he will be the righteous one. And David knows, I know that man's coming. I know he's been promised, God. But who is he? Who's going to be this man who can ascend this hill and stand before you, God? Who's going to be able to stand before you blameless? He knows it's not himself. He knows it's not the people of God presently at his time. But think of it as, as historically, as, as the Israelites are carrying this Ark of, Co- Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. They're holding it by the poles, and they're walking up there, and they're singing this song. And they have the joyous declaration up front of, God, you are creator of all things. All this belongs to you. They're looking at the scenery. They see the city getting larger and larger the closer they get to it. And they're saying, all this belongs to the Lord. It's all his. He created it all. And then they get to this verse in the song when they say, but who can actually go up there? Who, who can ascend this hill? Who's going to stand before you blameless, God? They are forced to reflect on their inability to be the individual to do this. They're forced to think on their inability to stand before God as blameless. But, this is where we begin to see our promised restoration. We saw the humble declaration, and now we see the promised restoration, beginning in verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. You see, in the covenant that God made with David, he promised David, Hey, David, you know that one who was promised in Genesis 3? He's still coming. And in fact, he's going to come from your line. You're going to have children, and from your your line, that promised Savior will come. And he said, this man that comes from your line, David, he will be the one who can ascend the hill. He will be the one who can stand blamelessly before me. And so as the Israelites are carrying this this ark up to Jerusalem and they get to that part where they recognize that they cannot stand before God blamelessly they get to this verse and they think but there's one coming who can and it's in him who we are going to hope and it's in him who we find our peace and whom in him who we find our rest because when he comes when that individual comes when that individual from David's line comes and can stand before God the blessing is not just for him but it's for all of us So we see in verse 6. It's coming to the generation of those who seek him. Those who seek this promised one. They get to have joy in the blessing as well. It's not just for this one individual, but those who follow this one individual get to share in the blessings as well. But who is this individual? Before we jump to naming names, let's look at the text. Verse 4, he has clean hands and a pure heart. This individual 
not only does what is right according to the will of God, he has the purest motives behind it. You see, it's easy to do the right things, but with false motives. Sure, I can love my neighbor, hoping it comes with something in return. Sure, I can read the word, but that's only so I can check it off my list. You see, there are things that we can do that are right and according to the word of God, but we do them with false motives. But not this individual, no. He does what is right, and he does it with right motives. Next, he does not lift up his soul to what is false. This individual does not commit idolatry. His faithfulness to God does not waver. He worships God alone. He does not swear deceitfully. This this individual never commits to something with the intention of breaking it. His word is his word. His yes is yes and his no is no. There is no deceit found in this individual. And why is he so special? Well, according to verse 5, he receives blessing from the Lord. That is a very special thing to receive blessing from the Lord. And it's this man that does it. And as we already mentioned, so do all of those who follow this man. And if you haven't caught on yet, I'll catch you up. This is not any of us. I've not come here this morning to declare to you that, hey, I'm this man in Psalm 24. I need you to follow me. I have not come to tell you that this man in Psalm 24 is Pastor Samuel. This man is not sitting in this room right now. But this man does promise restoration. Because those who follow him receive the blessing from the Lord as well. And that is a restored relationship with God. That is one thing that man has been missing since the garden, and it is the one thing that this man brings about. A restored relationship with God, and this is where our hope and our peace and our joy rests. But this hope also guarantees for us, and it elicits in us a victorious celebration. A victorious celebration beginning in verse 7. Before I read it, as I read it, notice the shift in from a present reality to a future one. Look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. There is a call for these gates and these doors to be opened. So as Israel is singing this psalm, as they are approaching Jerusalem, they get to Jerusalem and they say, Jerusalem, open your doors. Open your gates. Because the presence of God is coming in. This is the Lord of glory. This is the King of glory. Open your gates, Jerusalem, and let him in. But this this should cause a little bit of confusion in our minds as we read through this. Because if your Bible, if you look at your Bible, 
in verse 8, when the Lord is mentioned, it's in all caps. This is the name of God. This is how our English translations translate the name of God. And that should cause the confusion in our minds because according to verses 3 through 6, it's a man who's supposed to be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. It is a man who is supposed to be demanding that the gates be opened and the doors be opened. But yet in verse 8, it's actually God himself. You see, this was no ordinary man. This was a man who was so pure and so righteous that he could be equated with God. That his presence was synonymous with the presence of God himself. Now I recognize David probably did not fully realize what he was writing when he wrote this psalm. It had meaning for the people that he was writing it for. It had meaning for Israel at the time. As they are approaching Jerusalem, they are recognizing there's one they have to hope in. And they are recognizing that this one will come from the Lord. But from our time in history, the evidence is clear that the Spirit of God was inspiring these words to be written. Because we know who this individual is. Who is this king of glory? For the original readers, it was some unknown person who was to come, who they, they were hoping in. On this side of the cross in history, we know who this Savior is. We know who this promised Redeemer is. In Psalm 22, he is the suffering servant. In Psalm 23, he is the good shepherd. And we get to our psalm this morning, Psalm 24. And he is not just a suffering servant. He is not just a good shepherd. He is the King of glory. Do you remember the reading from the passage from Luke earlier? As Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, as he is about to begin his approach up the hill into Jerusalem, I hope that sounds familiar by now, those following him begin to declare that this is the king and he is due all glory. Who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. The Sunday school answer, it's Jesus. But I, I don't want you to take my word for it. Let's look at the text again. Remember this individual, he has clean hands and a pure heart. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. If you know no sin, you have a pure heart and pure actions. The text says he does not lift up his soul to what is false. Well, we know Jesus remained faithful to God and never fell into false worship. Matthew 4.10, Then Jesus said to Satan, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. This man was never supposed to swear deceitfully. 1 Peter 2.22, He committed no sin, this is the key, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But this individual is supposed to receive blessing from God. Matthew 28, 18, all authority on heaven and in earth has been given to me. That was Jesus speaking, not me. All authority in heaven and on earth was given to me. 
That is a huge blessing. When the creator of all things gives you authority over all things, that is a gigantic, monumental blessing. But according to to verse 8, he's strong and mighty in battle. If you can show me anybody who's stronger than somebody who can beat death, we can have a conversation. Think about his ascension after the resurrection. He's ascending into heaven. In the gates of heaven, think of this picture. As he approaches it, he's declaring, Open up, O gates. Open up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Think of the imagery in the text. It says, lift up your heads, O gates. This is an image. These gates are drooping. They have been long waiting somebody to come and declare that they be opened. They are downcast because no one has been allowed to enter the presence of God. And yet Christ, Jesus, as he is ascending into heaven, is declaring, gates, lift up your heads. Do not be downcast anymore. Open up. Open up, O ancient doors. The King of glory is coming in. The long-awaited King of glory is here. Open up. And think of the truth of those who have followed Christ and will follow Him as they declare, Open up, O gates, that the King of glory come in. They are not testifying to themselves. They are testifying to Christ Jesus as He is the only one worthy of glory and honor. And as he is the one who has the authority to open those gates. But think of the promised restoration as well. Remember verse 8, 6, sorry. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Well, according to Colossians 15, Christ Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the face of God. Jump over to Romans 3 really quickly. Romans 3. Verse 21. Remember, the blessing of the, of the righteousness of God comes upon this promised one, Jesus, but it's also promised to the generation who seek after him. So look at Romans 3.21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That righteousness is for all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. All those who seek Him receive the blessing of the righteousness of God. And that is testified in Romans 3. This should be encouraging to us. Israel had to hope in this unknown Savior to come. And we get to hope in the known Savior. But as poetry, this is not just a call to the temple gates in Jerusalem at that one point in time. The imagery extends even further. As the new temple of God, individually and corporately, the call remains the same. Lift up your heads, O gates. Open up, you ancient doors. 
You see, when you recognize God as sovereign creator and ruler over all, and you seek his face, desiring to stand before God blameless and righteous, and you no longer have to fear his wrath, and you realize that it's only through this God-man that that's possible, you're only left with one response. Will you let him in? That is the only response that you can have. Will you let him in? See, this is not just an an individual question, although it is, and we'll get to that in a minute. This is a corporate question as well. Church, will you let the king of glory in? This was the issue for the church of Laodicea mentioned in Revelation. They had become complacent and self-sufficient within themselves. And if we go read that message, the message from Jesus himself to this church, he describes himself as being outside of the church, knocking on the door, waiting to be let in. Church, are you constantly relying on your own abilities to grow this church? And I'm not just talking about numerically. I'm talking about spiritually. Is it your own perspectives, your own ideas, your own opinions that are trying to drive this church? Or is it the word of God? Is it the king of glory? You see, it's not about your cleverness. It's about Christ who has promised to build his church, and he will fulfill that promise. So church, please do not force the king of glory out. Do not tell this king of glory, we got this. We don't need you right now. Let him in. Let him rule as he is king. And while this is for the community of believers, it is for the individuals as well. It's a plea to you. Whether you're a seasoned saint or you're here and you're questioning this whole Christianity thing, no matter where you are on your level of faith, this question remains the same for you. Will you let this king of glory in? Whether it's the first time you've ever had to respond to that question, or it's a daily question you have to ask yourself every morning you wake up. That is a central question to your life. Will you let this king of glory in? The king of glory is showing himself to you. He's telling you, he's pleading with you, let me in. Let me rule. No matter where you are on your faith level, it's not just the question that remains the same. It's the truth that you belong to God. He has created you. You fall under his sovereign rule. You fall under his authority. But your hope and peace of being able to stand before him one day, this creator of all things, this ruler of all things, is in the king of glory alone. It is in this promised savior, this promised king of glory. And it is this king of glory who invites you to share in his victory. 
King of Glory saying, I did all the work. I was the only one who could do the work. Follow me. That is the only thing you have to do. Is turn away from yourself and follow me. May we let him in and may we treasure that victory that we have in this king of glory. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you as creator and ruler of all things. We recognize that we fall under your leadership, your authority. Forgive us, God, for where we fight against that and where we want to be our own king. Help us see the King of glory in all of his glory. Help us recognize that he is the only way we are made right before you. And even in this moment, may we recognize that it is only because of the King of glory that we can have you as an audience right now to hear this prayer. And so it's in his name, in the name of the King of glory, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.